0: How did the Mont Pelerin Society begin? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Bruce Caldwell. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Bruce Caldwell. Bruce is a research professor of economics and the director of the Center for the History of Political Economy at Duke University. He's the author of Beyond Positivism, Economic Methodology in the 20th Century. For the past three decades, his research has principally focused on the multifaceted writings of the Nobel Prize-winning economist and social theorist Friedrich Hayek. Caldwell is the author of Hayek's Challenge, an intellectual biography of F.A. Hayek, and since 2002, he has been the general editor of the collected works of F.A. Hayek. He's currently working on a full biography of Hayek as well. Caldwell has held research fellowships at New York University, Cambridge University, and the London School of Economics, and was previously a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's also a past president of the History of Economic Society and of the Southern Economic Association, a life member of Clare Hall, Cambridge, and a distinguished fellow of the History of Economics Society. His forthcoming book, Mont Pelerin, 1947, will form the basis of most of our conversation today. Bruce, welcome to The Curious Task.
1: Delighted to be here and looking forward to it.
0: Us as well. So, Bruce, we frame each of our episodes around a question and go wherever the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, how did the Mont Society begin? And really, this is an opportunity for us to discuss the backstory of the society and what it eventually became and, and the key players involved in that and so on. Um, but before I jump right into that train of thought specifically, I wanted just to mention that obviously Hayek is a key player in this story. And at the beginning of your aforementioned book in the intro, he has a, there's a lot of interesting information that you were able to gather about Hayek, his letters and so on, and a lot of the things that went into the actual creation of the society. H- how did you find all this information? Where did you get access to things like letters and so on and so forth like this? This is very fascinating to me.
1: Okay. Well, um, it's it's it will be a long story.
0: No
1: problem. Uh, I've I've been working on a biography of uh, Friedrich Hayek uh, with Hans Jord Klausinger for about a decade. And in the course of uh, writing that biography, which will also be coming out the first, basically the first half of the biography uh, through 1950 of Hayek's life, uh, (laughs) we worked on it for a decade and we collected. We worked in archives. Went through all the archives that we thought would be relevant. We we had letters from the family that were had to be translated because most of them were in German. His mother wrote in an obscure German script, so we had to find someone who could read that. Uh, and and this was uh, this is what my life has been, and his life has been for the past uh, decade, trying to to figure out who this guy Friedrich Hayek was and and uh, what what. Motivated him to do the various things that he did in terms of writing and also institution building. So the Mont Pelerin Society uh, was one of those institutions that uh, he was instrumental in creating. I I think it would be fair to call him its founder. Uh, and And the backstory is that uh, Hayek was an Austrian economist who took a job at the London School of Economics in the nineteen thirties. As the nineteen thirties progressed, he made Variety of contributions to economics, but he became increasingly concerned about the future of liberalism uh, in the environment of the 1930s. You have the Great Depression, so it looked like uh, uh, you know free market uh, capitalism was was in the toilet. Basically, uh, uh, the alternatives that were collectivist were some of them were quite scary. <clears throat> I mean, the Soviet Union was one example. Uh, authoritarian regimes in Central Europe. Uh, uh, various forms of fascism were, were were emerging at the time. And many intellectuals thought that socialism was kind of a middle ground uh, to pursue and were quite critical of, of liberalism. Uh, and uh, what Hayek saw as the mission at that point, uh, slowly this is an idea that emerged, I think, uh, was to try to put liberalism on a new foundation. Liberal ideas uh, date to the 19th century. Well, the history, uh, the prehistory of not calling them, them liberals, but uh, you, we could we could go back to, to ancient Greece. But in terms of a, of, of a more well-defined set of ideas, it was in the 19th century, but it was often associated particularly by the 1930s with just simply laissez-faire. And he said, well, you know, there's, it, it, liberalism is more than that, and liberalism in the 20th century has to a- address some of the concerns that people have about a free market system and, and and its implications for the broader society. So that that became kind of a mission of his in the 1930s, and he and he took a variety of steps. There was a, a colloquium. Uh, Walter Lippmann was a famous newspaperman who uh, wrote a book called The Good Society in the middle of the 1930s. Uh, Lippmann had started out as uh, kind of a progressive, but uh, by the mid 30s, he was uh, kind of critical of the of the New Deal. Was uh, wanting to uh, explore liberalism as an alternative. So there was a colloquium that was set up in uh, in Paris in 1938, uh, called the it's now called the Colloquium basically, uh, and it was an exploration uh, by various people of the ideas in the book, but also trying to figure out what would a 20th century liberalism look like. And unfortunately, that took place right before World War II started. So the, 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 the group that had gathered there didn't really uh, go anywhere. But this is in the back of Hayek's mind uh, from, uh, from that point forward. Uh, in, in World War II, uh, uh, the LSE was moved up to Cambridge. This is where Hayek did his work on the road to serfdom. Uh, the book that would really make him famous, um, and but he was also still concerned about what would happen after World War II was over. So he gave a speech at Cambridge, uh, talking about an Acton Tocqueville Society that would be a society of liberals to discuss liberal principles, uh, just like the Collop Lippman sort of uh, uh, a group, but a more permanent society, and that was that was his fundamental idea. I don't think it would have gone anywhere because uh, he had you know kind of grandiose hopes for this society. Had it not been for the Road to Serfdom, what the Road to Serfdom did was it was a fairly popular book uh, in when it was published in uh, England in March 1944, and then published in the U.S. in September of 44. But it really became much better known when Reader's Digest did a condensation of it that appeared right at the end of the war, April 1945. And he, was, uh, he took a trip to America. He was on a speaking tour. He met someone who would be very important for the foundation of the Mont Pelerin Society. This was a guy named uh, Harold Lunau, who was the, uh, the president of the William Volcker Charities Fund. And this was a, a foundation that ultimately provided money to bring the American guests to the meeting of the first meeting of this group that ended up being the founding meeting of the Mont Pelerin Society in April 1947. So Lunau was important for that, for that side of it. And also in his, in his various trips uh, around Europe, promoting the, the book and giving lectures, he, he ran into a guy named Albert Hunold. Who was a friend of of his Hayek's friend Wilhelm Rupke, uh, and Hunold was a person who was able to raise some money from Europe to uh, provide a venue for the first uh, conference. So this uh, the 1947 meeting was initially simply a meeting for liberals from various different countries to come together and discuss what their future of liberalism might be at a point in time when. When, as Hayek would say, later, uh, you could count the number of liberals academics in each country on on one hand uh, there was very few people who would be uh, endorsing liberalism at that point in time so it was a it was a a meeting that was a uh, intended to to organize a society, but it was something that quite easily could not have come off, and it was a nice uh, set of of, of coincidences and, and lucky circumstances that, that allowed it to, to actually happen. So that's, uh, that's how the initial you know, kind of funding and for the meeting and Hayek's initial vision for the meeting for, for this sort of uh, group uh, uh, was it was established
0: that, that, that's excellent overview and i have actually i sketched down a lot of follow-ups i want to drill into so so we can do that okay. right now so like so at the beginning of what you were saying there so and i want to get a bit into this further as well you talked about you know ov- obviously hayek's thinking on, on liberalism and the future of it wasn't just you know for the mo- when he decided that you know Mont and society should be formed as you said like you know he was thinking on this stuff much earlier of course in the 1930s um, but then you talked about how obviously you know World War Two naturally would put a pause on some of this thinking, and then it was sort of at the as the war started coming to a close that this got a little more serious. As you noted, that it was the uh, it wasn't until the mid forties that we really started seeing Hayek ex- thinking about this and actually put, pushing the gas on, gas on this. But I guess there's slightly different historical context that I think I want you to have. Um, explain to our listeners, what you did touch upon a bit, you know, in the 30s, you had sort of the discussion, uh, you know, especially after 29, the future of liberalism, the the economic um, norms, if you will, overall, there was the discussion because of the Great Depression and the crisis about th- things such as like, you know, what what the role of, of a central bank should be the role of state planning versus the economy and so on in the 30s. But then you had, of course, World War II, And then after that, a sort of, new pathway with all the old questions still about to move ahead as I understand it on the table for Hayek but also sort of a renewed I think I guess urgency to these questions as if they wouldn't be just traveling through the 30s thinking about this stuff and needing to to think you know to get some intellectuals together and talk about this stuff right after all the destruction World War II it seems like this really got liberal intellectuals thinking a little more like okay now we just had a destructive war not only is central planning (laughs) <laughs> and things like that on the table. But you have what will the post-World War II order look like as well? So I think there's that that's a, a major question and impetus, it seems, for this type of thinking beyond just the stuff that was going in the 30s, at least the way I understand where his head must have been at at the time.
1: Well, absolutely right. I mean, the term Cold War doesn't start to be applied until later in the 40s, directly after the, the meeting, like 48 or so but it was pretty clear that not only had there been this massive uh, destruction the final year of the war in particular was was horrific in central europe uh as the russians were closing in from one side and the uh, the allied forces uh, on, the, on the western front uh, closing in so you know firebombing of cities you know massive uh out of people who had no homes <laughs> at all uh, food supplies were were disrupted massively and yeah the war ends in in the summer of 1945 but even in april 1947 there was there was real danger of mass starvation uh in in central europe uh the allies had divided uh the the Area into four zones. Uh, uh, each one had control of these zones. The the, the Russians were uh, rapidly taking away anything that could be carried in terms of of uh, of factory types of equipment. Anything that could be used uh, in their own country, uh, they were kind of reducing that sector to nothing. There was dislocation of populations. People who were of German ethnic backgrounds who were living in countries that had uh, that the Germans had taken over were uh, were had had to leave it basically on threat of, of extinction if they didn't get out of there. So it was it was a miserable, horrible time after World War Two and nothing was happening. It was basically continued to be a controlled economy uh, in many of these areas uh, of the sort it, during wartime. Uh, you have wartime controls. Uh, try to direct everything from the center. Many British socialists thought, "Well, this is great. We'll just continue these wartime controls right. in in the in, in in peacetime." So that was you know during the war. Hayek could see that coming, so he was worried about that. Uh, and indeed, uh, you know, nationalization in Britain was was uh, proceeding apace uh, directly after the war when when labor. Uh, 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 prevailed in the in the in the election following the war so it, it was a it was a time when there were multiple problems it was not just some theoretical conception of socialism right it was various changes that were taking place in 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 political uh uh organizations throughout throughout europe the communist party was very strong in italy very strong in france um so <laughs> it was just on multiple fronts that uh, that Things looked quite grim. And so although there was very much of an emphasis on what are the philosophical foundations of liberalism that was being discussed at this meeting, it was done within a context of a war, you know, a world that had just been you know, brutalized and destroyed uh, and how how best to rebuild it. What is the direction we want to try to offer and any kind of insights into, into how to rebuild it?
0: Yeah, on, on your note about the the outlook looking a little grim, that's the kind of impression I got as you told the backstory at the beginning of your book, and also in some of the transcripts. That, like, as you said, it did it, it certainly seemed everybody was on the page at least about one thing, <laughs> which is that you know they weren't sitting there, as you said, just to have a nice theoretical discussion about the next grand era that looked so hopeful that was going to come by. There was there was genuine worry in the air, and this this was uh, formed not only to get intellectuals together, but also to deal with with the sense of of worry, and also of course hindsight being. 2020, we can see how the actual timeline went. But for someone sitting there in the mid forties thinking about what's going to happen, not only to the world, but to the future of liberalism, this was, this was a pretty worrying time.
1: Indeed. And exactly.
0: uh, one, one thing that I found interesting is that Hayek noted on some of the speaking tours, you said that like, he would find pockets of individuals everywhere he traveled that were concerned about the things he was. And this sort of inspired him to think that there should right. be an opportunity to connect all these folks. But uh you know now if people think about what is considered the sort of broadly speaking classical liberal liberal movement we can think of many organizations many ways to get together and connect different wings of it and so on but at that time i guess w- was there truly no way that th- this was happening i mean I, you know there was of course i guess people in the broadest sense subscribing to liberal democratic and parliamentary norms but as far as this classical liberal perspective is it actually true i guess that there was there was really no way for these folks to get together in the same way that the MPS was truly needed
1: this was something that Hayek uh, said in his later reminiscences, and I think it's exactly right. I, you know, it, there were pockets of people who were sympathetic to liberal ideas, but the vast majority of people within the academy certainly were not. Uh, and he taught at the London School of Economics. He was there with friends like Lionel Robbins and and and, uh, and Peish, uh, Benham, Freddie Benham. Uh, But the LSE was founded by Fabian Socialists, for goodness sake. So, I mean, it was not, you know, it was not, (laughs) they were kind of outliers in their own home. And so there was, there was Jukes who was, uh, who attended the meeting, who was from Manchester and Stanley Dennison, who was from Cambridge. But I mean, these are, you know, few and far between people that that had uh, sympathy with liberal ideas. Now, Hayek was very good about, uh, knowing different people in different places. It wasn't just simply on that initial tour uh, for the road to serfdom that he came to know these people. He, he had corresponded with people like Frank Knight and Henry Simons, who wasn't able to attend because he, he, he died in 1946, but these are people at the university of Chicago. Uh, Hayek traveled pretty widely uh, throughout his career in the, in the twenties and thirties uh, uh, through uh, places across uh, Central Europe, he had, yeah, when he had started out in Austria, Austria, Vienna was very much of a place where lots of people came through to give talks. Uh, it was it was one of the centers for uh, economic thinking, broadly defined, but particularly given that Ludwig von Mises was so important there, many of the people who would have been more sympathetic to liberalism would have come through. So he he actually got to know people earlier, and he was calling, if you look at the list of people who attended the initial meeting, it it very much is a, a list of of people that Hayek had corresponded with earlier, that he knew them personally. I think George Stigler was the only uh, academic that he had not uh, personally met, although he knew of him and had had. Uh, had written uh, favorably about his about his work to others in, in correspondence. So uh, it was it was kind of a Friends of Hay- Hayek grouping in, the, in that in that sense when it came to the academics that he invited.
0: Right. And and you talked about sort of um, like Hay- Hayek's initial vision for the, for what would eventually become the Montpellerin Society, can can you can you talk a bit about that? I was fascinated to see that he was in communication with with Harold Leno and actually sent him like a proposal. Here's what I'm thinking. He talked about facilitating contacts. We've sort of spent time you and I on that just now, but. He also talked about translation, translating foundational and contemporary liberal texts, an international journal, setting up a permanent home. So this wasn't, although tactically speaking, obviously, the first thing was to get some folks together. He definitely had like a, a grand vision at play here. Could you get into that a little bit more?
1: Sure. So this uh, just all the things that you described were, were part and parcel of what he had in this uh, six page single type pro- proposal that he sent to Lunau. And Lou now turned him down flat because it was something like five hundred thousand dollars. he said, "Well, we can we can start out with an initial amount of maybe fifty thousand dollars, but this is a lot of money back then. Right. It was it was uh, many of the people, the things that he was mentioning, you know, translations. He, this is an American foundation that Hayek seemed most worried about the future of Europe after World War II and." Yeah, the American foundation guy saying, well, you know, do I really want to be spending all this money to help out Europe? I mean, I'm worried about liberalism here in the United States. The initial attempt to get um, uh, foundation money, uh, I think, was was chastening for Hayek. I mean, he was he was riding high, you know, on, in terms of the popularity of the road to serfdom. So he, he decided to go for the big ask and, and got turned down, basically. Uh, but one of the people that was an advisor to uh, Lunao Uh, Red Miller, Lauren Miller, who ends up being a little known, but extremely important uh, figure in all of the foundation sorts of histories, American foundations that are supporting classical liberalism. He, uh, he encouraged Hayek uh, in a subsequent letter and said, you know, don't, you know, there was probably a little too much emphasis on Europe, but your general ideas seem to be pretty, pretty good here. Uh, And, uh, it was Miller who had a meeting with Hayek at, at one point, And soon after that meeting, this was on a, on a subsequent American trip, that Hayek came up with, uh, wrote the, the the first draft of the paper that became uh, "Intellectuals and Socialism. And what Hayek decided to do in his next iteration of uh Proposals and ideas when he started to discuss these things with, with foundations that might be able to provide funding for meetings and things like that was what we need to do is not try to have interventions that are immediately uh, you know, getting out in, in terms of the public, to trying to influence policy in the in the day-to-day politics of, of the world. What we really need to do is build up the foundations of liberalism so that. You know, there's lots of different sorts of countries that have different sets of institutions. We need to think if there's certain things that we would be able to apply across the board. And maybe if not across the board, at least just provide principles that, that people can then adapt to the particular circumstances of, of the situation that they find on the, on the ground in their own home countries. And he was insistent on that, and there were uh, some of the foundation people as well as some of the people who were academics wanted to go in a much more uh, uh, practical, uh, get it out there, you know, policy advisor think tank sort of way. Right. And he says, "No, our job is not. This is not our. This is not our comparative advantage." And I think you know, I, it, it's hard not to to, to speculate that uh, part of that was his reaction to the reaction to the road to serfdom, <laughs> because. As the Road to Serfdom, yeah. He, he viewed this as a, as a book to start a conversation about, uh, you know, problems of socialism. And it was it, particularly after the Reader's Digest condensation, it was embraced by political parties and it became kind of a, a, a iconic, uh, a Cold War document, right? That, yeah, he wanted to have an intellectual conversation about these things, and it, and it really was. In, in in, i think in his view used uh for political purposes in ways that he had never intended so he thought geez maybe we don't we we're not the right people to be playing that kind of game right uh, we, you know our 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 advantage is to be able to think clearly through these these the, the philosophical foundations of these issues as as opposed to getting out there in, in the in the dirty mix of politics
0: <laughs> right right exactly and and um and and one of the things i was going to ask you to tie up with a knot on is you talked about actually i guess uh fun- funding being rejected the first time by uh Harold Lunau, but then i guess there was another uh gent that entered the story named Albert Hunold i think and and uh right. there's there a series of sort of mini events that led to him finally i guess i, I think as you said in, in the book you know he had to it was, it was a balancing act of diplomacy, if you will, to keep interest on both parties, on both sides of the ocean, get some funding for the Americans, get some funding from uh, a- Albert Hunnell to, to actually have the conference. Can you go a bit into that? Because I think that, that was pretty interesting. So how did, so we, we you know, you talked about this is going to cost a lot of money because people in most cases weren't paying their way in things. How did this actually come together from like the funding perspective and the logistics?
1: Sure, sure. So i mean, uh, you know, one of the uh, standard, Accusations about the Mont Pelerin Society is that it's, it's these academics who are in bed with with big foundations who are you know have their particular views that they're trying to press and that these academics are going along with it. And what you can see with the with the correspondence and and just the the actual what actually transpired it is really quite a different story. So Hahnold was somebody who was very strange guy. He had lots of different jobs. He was a a banker uh, right after the war in Switzerland. Uh, Then he became the spokesman for the Swiss uh, watch, uh, uh, you know, industry, which is a very big, (laughs) very big industry in Switzerland, as you can imagine. So he was just kind of a jack of all trades, very well connected, didn't have a lot of money himself, but knew people who did. And uh, one of Hayek's Friends from dating back to the 1920s is a German economist named Wilhelm Rupke, who uh, had spent the war in uh, Geneva at the Institute for Advanced Studies, uh, graduate advanced studies there. Um, this is one of the people that was at the meeting. Uh, the one of the, the person who gave the introductory address was the director of that of that institute, uh, William Rippard. Uh So anyway, Rupke also was concerned about the future of the Western world uh, after World War II was over. He wrote extensively about this during the war. He had three big books. Uh, He was worried about the economics, but also about culture and religion and morality. Um, So he was a a much more eclectic sort of writer. Many of the Europeans that were at the meeting were, were less economistic than the Americans, people like Friedman or Knight whose background was was very much more in economics. But anyway, uh, Rupke wanted to start a journal that he was going to call Occident because he was worried about the future of Western civilization. It wasn't just about economics, but it was about these broader issues. And Hunold uh, was raising money for that, but Hunold, the the Swiss uh, uh, foundation guy, uh, was wanted to have influence on the, on the content of the journal. And Rupke said, absolutely not. That's, you know, you're, you're providing funds for this, but I'm not going to do it if that's what you're going to do. So that, that thing fell apart. But Hunold still had the money that he had been raising. And at one point when Hayek was uh, traveling through Switzerland and gave a, a, a talk at the University of Zurich, uh, he and Hunold sat down and Hunold said, well, maybe we can repurpose this money for a meeting. I was delighted. And it was when he had the money from Hunnold that he contacts Lunau and said, Look, I, I I know you rejected that initial proposal, but we found someone who's who's willing to put together the money that will fund them the, the venue, the the you know, the hotel and and uh, and meals for people and, and set that all up. But it really wouldn't work unless we unless we also brought over a bunch of Americans. Now he, he called them Americans. Half of the people who were coming from America were people like Ludwig von Mises right. or Fritz Plopp, and the, the, these were people who had many of them had fled Central Europe with their lives because they were liberals, and now uh, were were happy to come come back to to join this meeting. But um, so Hayek was actually pretty savvy in terms of putting together these things. But one of the one of the things that I think is 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 quite important, particularly given the way that the Montpellier society so often characterized by its its critics is that they were very, very careful uh, about um, perceptions even of, of being influenced by, by uh, moneyed uh, interests uh, and corporate interests. And indeed there there was only, uh, so there were some foundation people who attended the meeting, but by and large it was academics. And there were also writers, people like Henry Hazlitt, uh, Veronica Wedgwood, uh, and others. Uh, there was only one businessman who, who attended, and he was invited like a couple of weeks before the conference attended. He was a Belgian who was a friend of Rupke's who, um, who had written something. He had actually written some stuff on, on liberalism, so he wasn't uh, simply a businessman, but he was invited in the last couple of weeks, and was, I think it was mostly because he was from Belgium, and they didn't have anyone from Belgium, so they really wanted to have... Uh, a kind of wide spread, uh, uh, you know, have all different countries represented there as much as they could. So um, it was, it, it, the wrap the, the that this was, you know, just kind of a, a, uh, a meeting that was put together by a bunch of corporations is just one of the many myths about the mod in Society that I think uh, looking over the, 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 the transcript and, and the background to the meeting, uh, it makes clear.
0: Right. And I'd like to drill a little bit more into the attendees and and some things like that, but actually we're at the point where we're going to take a quick break. So everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Bruce Colwell today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Christopher McDonald, Daniel Beer, and Danny Leroy. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Bruce Caldwell today. So Bruce, in the, in the first half, I really enjoyed hearing you talk about the, the origins of the Mont Pelerin Society, Hayek sort of doing his diplomacy, raising funds, so on and so forth. And we were just starting to talk about the actual uh, attendees of the meeting and, and, and the kinds of ways that Hayek was jockeying the, the perception that he thought might actually um, happen if you know this meeting ended up being stuffed with a bunch of corporate business people. So he really did want to keep it with mainly scholars and writers. Um, and, uh, and actually, I think at one point too, if I remember correctly, that he did receive pressure from his funds funders to actually reject some of the people but he had to push back a bit on that as well so, so like you know he was, he was very dedicated to to having this like I said be scholars and writers and he was very principled in that matter like obviously and, and I should say to all the listeners in, in uh, Bruce's book there actually is a list of the participants so we're not gonna like literally read the book here but just for the sake of our discussion day Bruce can you list some of the uh, notable scholars that people might have name recognition of or any that you find the most interesting just sort of give us a handful of the, the kinds of people that stalked this initial meeting so people can get an idea of what was going on there.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a great group of people. Uh, really, in, in if anyone is interested in the history of economic thought, it, it, it really is kind of a pantheon of, of liberal thinkers anyway. So people that he knew from the Vienna days, like Ludwig von Mises and, and Fritz Machlup, uh, friends of his from uh, England, like Lionel Robbins, who was the person who was yeah, very important in terms of, of, uh, of being his colleague at the London School of Economics during the 1930s. Uh, from the University of Chicago, there was uh, Milton Friedman and, and Frank Knight. Uh, Aaron, director, uh, would soon join the uh, University of Chicago as well. Um, and he, uh, he's uh, the brother-in-law of Milton Friedman. Uh, Milton married uh, Aaron's uh, sister, Rose, um, George Stigler, who was not at Chicago yet, but he also attended, and they all knew each other, so they traveled together. Knight, Director Friedman, and Stigler uh, came over together on, on the boat. Uh, it was Friedman's first trip uh, to Europe, I think also true for Stigler. Uh, he had met Knight in Vienna. as He was one of the people that he knew from that Um, But, you know, the idea was to introduce some of these people who were from the States and from other places to other liberals in other countries. So he had Karl Popper was there, um, someone that he had met in London in the 30s and had uh, was instrumental in in bringing Popper to the London School of Economics from New Zealand. Uh, Popper started working there at at the end of World War Two. You had. uh, some newspaper people who were some way or another connected to Hayek. Henry Hazlitt had, had written a, re- a review of the road to serfdom when it came out in America. John Davenport for the New York times review of books. Uh, John Davenport worked for fortune magazine and he wrote a favorable review. Max Eastman who had done the condensation for readers digest had been invited, but was unable to come. So uh, the, uh, uh, European representative of, of Reader's Digest was there. Veronica Wedgwood was the only woman. She was a fascinating figure. She's a uh, someone who wrote some very well-appreciated histories early on. She's an Oxford-trained historian uh, that were not popular. Popular history is the wrong word, but I, you get the idea. It's It's taking a historical figure and, telling the story in such a way that people really want to read the book, right. you know? And, and so she also, she was an editor at, at Time and Tide, which was a, a very, a very important intellectual outlet uh, in the interwar period and, and post-war period. It was, it was more liberal in the, in the post-war period, but early on it had been a, 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 a an outlet for feminist writers, uh, essentially. So there was a, there was a lot of women that were working on the on the at the at the newspaper. Um, so it, it, and it wasn't a newspaper; it was more of a. It was a weekly, uh, but it was, you know, it's a great, interesting uh, uh, place to get out, to see ideas expressed. And she was, I thought, one of the most impressive of the of, of the attendees because she she ran the second session. The first session was one that where there was a lot of fireworks because Ludwig von Mises was kind of an old line liberal and everyone else virtually, uh, not everyone, but virtually everyone else said, no, look, we got to modify liberalism. We got to figure out ways to deal with, with questions of inequality of, you know, are are corporations out of control? Uh, What sorts of, what sort of constraint are unions out of control? What sort of constraints do we need to have in terms of economic policy that would that would help make uh, liberalism more attractive to people in terms of dealing with issues that people are worried about? So um, she was uh, the one who ran the second session. She said, well, I, perhaps uh, they've chosen me for this second session so that we can kind of calm things down. So she was she was a fascinating figure. Lovely, lovely woman. Yeah
0: so there's a lot of interesting characters there and as, just on that note as you're just saying there too that you know it's interesting to note that although all were relatively liberal there were definitely different perspectives and backgrounds and i oh, think absolutely and i think even before the session started you if i recall correctly you had noted that um even even the list caused like at least a minor sort of controversy you had people like mises as you know, mentioned worried about the interventionists that might be in the room and how they might right. you know steer the conversation whereas it seemed like that for example carl popper thought it would be good to actually have you know people in the room that might be more sympathetic or knowledgeable to the, for example, the socialist position. So there was even, even though these people are all relatively liberal, I was saying is that there there was even a a spectrum within that spectrum, if you will, at least that's what I gathered. So that's what made the the intellectual exchange interesting. It wasn't just a carbon copy of Hayek's that was invited.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, he really did want to encourage discussion and debate and, and he was successful. (laughs) Let's put it that way. If you read the transcript, uh, there was lots and lots of debate about what what the what is the right way to go and what reasons people had for defending the particular points that they did so it's it's actually the transcript is is very rich I I, sh- I should I should just note that the you know what the what the book is that we're, we're talking about is that is uh, Hayek's secretary um, Dorothy Hahn uh, uh, took notes on the uh, Each of the sessions that she attended, she at at one point, various points, I I think she probably had to kind of uh, duck her head because she was (laughs) because yeah these are these are really smart people debating with each other a couple of hours each session, and so they're not verbatim transcripts by any means. They're just trying to give you a sense of what happened in each one of the sessions, but they're still extremely rich, and you really get a sense of the different viewpoints but also the different personalities Mises is is very strong and very it, it just anyone who knows his writings he's very direct he has strong views expresses himself concisely um and you know Frank Knight is, has, is he he was the person who was in charge of the session on Christianity and liberalism this is someone who who thought that liberalism and and, and religion were incompatible because they had different uh, uh, different criteria for what they were trying to accomplish. Truth is is important for for liberalism and for science, and uh, uh, belief and faith is important for religion. And these two things can't mix. Whereas Hayek very much wanted to get uh, the standard antagonism that liberalism had had in Europe towards particularly Catholicism. They were they were at loggerheads throughout the 19th century, especially in, in Austria, where he austro Hungarian empire, that was very much of a live issue when he was growing up. Um, so he wanted to see more of a, a bringing of them together and Knight, you know, offers his own views at the beginning of the session. And immediately thereafter, Walter Eucken, one of the, one of the outstanding, another outstanding figure, uh, uh, at the at the at the sessions uh, a german who had stayed in Germany during World war II, was kind of opposing throughout that period um the nazi regime but had to do it very carefully. He was in freiburg uh, yeah towards the end of the war it was lucky that he didn't uh, that he was able to survive the war he was he was held by the Gestapo for a while he wasn't tortured some of his colleagues were uh well, he was somebody who said, "Look, I I've lived through this totalitarian sort of regime, and let me tell you. Um, liberalism is the only sort of regime where something like Christianity can or or any kind of religious expression can be practiced. Um, because if you live under a totalitarian state, anything that that would could challenge it, uh, they want to extinguish. So, he said, "We must have a a, a rapprochement between uh between liberalism and and uh and Religion, so it was lovely, lovely debates going back and forth. It, it really is a um, a very um, uh, well, just lovely,
0: <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, fair enough. Um- in, in, in both the modern and the Smithian sense, we can say it was lovely. Um, <laughs> right,
1: there we go. Well done.
0: And, uh, and and I will just say that we can't leave the subject of exactly what was talked about without uh, mentioning that there's one tale that became sort of folklore with, with Mises, I believe, right? And but this wasn't right. caught in the transcripts. For those unfamiliar, would you like to, to, to share what Milton Friedman used to like to share very often and so on?
1: Yes, so sure. So the, the very first session was free enterprise or the competitive order that was the title of it the first five there were there were 10 substantive topics that were taken up at the at the meeting and the first five topics were topics that hayek had recommended and the very first of these was free enterprise or competitive order and the juxtaposition there is free enterprise would be kind of like 19th century laissez faire versus competitive order the notion that you want to have a free market system but It uh, can devolve into monopolies, various sorts of what economists today might call market failures, Uh, monopolies, both in in business enterprise, but also in labor union uh, uh, would be another example of that. Also worried about uh, income inequality. Uh, and uh, the business cycle, monetary arrangements. So uh, Hayek opened that session with a paper where he said that what we're most concerned, I think, in in this group, is with what is the proper competitive order. We might have very different positions on that, but it has to go something has to go beyond the kind of nineteenth century laissez faire. And this is a position he had been articulating since the nineteen thirties. Uh, frankly. So it was nothing new for him, but it was followed by a position by uh, a similar sort of position being taken by Aaron Director. And then uh, uh, Walter Eucken also uh, had a similar sort of uh, intervention. So, you know, if it's supposed to be free enterprise versus or the competitive border, the free enterprise part hadn't been represented by the opening speaker. So this evening session uh, uh, was the transcript shows the discussion that took place after these initial papers. And it was at this, that you can see that Mises and a couple of the foundation people are much more interested in, in the free enter- defending the free enterprise view versus uh, everyone else. And all, as you said in the transcript, you can tell that Mises is disagreeing with other people and other people are, are actually saying some pretty nasty things to him in, in the transcript, but not uh, the apocryphal, but probably true story, where at some point he he finally stands up and says, ah, oh, you're all a bunch of socialists and, and and leaves the room. Now, it may have been at the very end of the session that he said that, so I'm not saying that it, it, we don't know when it happened or or exactly how it happened, but this is a story that Friedman always told. That was the only place that basically uh, you'd see it, but. Uh, we discovered a letter from Lionel Robbins to his wife that was dated April third nineteen forty seven which was the third day of the meetings and the other sessions that took place after that it had to be at this evening session. that must have been when it happened uh so uh because Robin says, yeah, Mises called us all a bunch of socialists so that that part is true um and uh and now we've, we're finally able to kind of nail down when that when that story but the origins of the story actually were
0: right. And and sometimes the way uh, Friedman used to mention, and sometimes the way others used to recount that and, use that as an example uh, for they, you know, people like to sort of say, hey, look, you know, the Mont Pelerin society was already filled with a bunch of of liberals. And if Mises is even saying, hey, you're a bunch of socialists, look how extreme he is. But I think another way to look at that a little deeper way of looking at that is what what you said before, right, is that there's sort of a little bit more nuance there. It's not just about him being extreme or other people not. It's also a lot about, like you said, there's a sort of, um, if you will, uh, right embodied in those people, the idea of the competitive order versus the, the free enterprise side, sort of some of the older, style laissez-faire liberals or the older guard with their own life experiences to back that up it wasn't as if it was just all theoretical right, right. Me- meeting what they must have viewed as in a way um, not literally by age but maybe some newer generation liberal ideas that they might have not necessarily been comfortable with for a variety of reasons valid or not so I think it's it's a very interesting story and people like to tell it as if it's just oh look look at these opposed people or look how extreme Mises is. But I think there's a lot more going on there, as you described. I think it's a very interesting um, almost story that helps summarize the kind of spectrum that was there.
1: Indeed. Well, you know, and I'll just uh, just add to that, that both um, Hayek and Robbins, in the course of the discussion, it's clear that they are not undermining Mises. They're saying, okay, he, here are the points that he's making that we need to discuss. More fully, as opposed to just, um, in some cases, people were just saying, "Well, that, that makes no sense to me. What we need to do is something else," without offering any argument. Right. And, and I I think that the whole point, as I said before, was to argue through these things, get some get some options on the table, and figure out what we think about them. So right. There. We
0: go. And I have a couple more questions before we actually head to our formal wrap up as time winds down. One of them is that. Um, Obviously, we can't go into everything that was discussed at the conference. You highlighted some of the sessions, and I definitely encourage all of our listeners to uh, check out the book and actually read the transcripts and go go through all that. But at a high level, what are the other kinds of things that were discussed at the conference? I'm not sure if you want to bring attention to any specific session or just point to any other points of interest that, of course, if people do uh, get your book, they can definitely look into. So what other kinds of things were discussed beyond the ones you already highlighted? Sure.
1: So I'll I'll highlight a a couple couple of them. One is the the problem of Germany. So this was the session that was in the in the uh, kind of the third of Hayek's chosen sessions. And this is the place that Walter Eucken really uh, became the most prominent spokesman because he would, he was saying, as I noted, he had lived through the totalitarian regime of Nazi Germany. But in the immediate post-war period, and indeed even then, in April 1947, it continued to be a controlled economy. Uh, Prices were fixed. uh, People were starving. uh, There were prohibitions on what sorts of industries could exist. And he described the situation that the ordinary German was confronting in such poignant terms uh, that it really had an effect on the rest of the uh, audience there. He talked about how barter had basically become the only way that people could get anything. And that literally, and if you read accounts from this period, it's exactly true, uh, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people would spend their day gathering up family heirlooms, (laughs) taking them out into the country and bartering for a week or two supply potatoes or, or, or grains or, or whatever just so that they could continue to uh, exist uh the, a lot of the German lands that had been German lands uh, they were they were now Polish lands <laughs> but places where where food was grown was no longer part of Germany um, and so the, they were literally facing uh, a starvation on uh, something like a thousand calories a day was the average, and a lot of people weren't getting that. And this was something that was discussed in the session on agriculture, but I think that uh, Walter Eucken in the Problem of Germany uh, session really brought it home. And this is something that that both Stigler and, and Friedman in their uh, biographies, autobiographies, uh, mentioned how how impressed they were with, with Eucken. Uh, another session uh, was on taxation, poverty. Uh, and uh, income distribution that was kind of the Milton Friedman show and Milton Friedman is associated with the negative income tax. Uh, Jennifer Burns is is doing a, a lovely biography on, on, on Friedman and she told me that he had actually come up with the notion of a negative income tax as far back as 1939. Hmm. Um, but And he wasn't calling it a negative income tax, but basically he said uh, a lot of the problems of poverty can be uh, addressed through the tax system by having a progressive income tax that also includes this kind of negative income tax where you provide a a basic income for uh, people who are below a certain level and try to set it up in such a way that uh, you don't have negative work incentives. And this was uh, it, it. if for people who know Milton Friedman, you read the transcript, and it just is so perfect because people are peppering him with questions, and he is having a rapid-fire response to each one of them. Yeah, you know, blah 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 right. blah. Here's how you do that. Blah 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 blah. Oh well, look, this is what you do, and it, it's just a, a lovely exchange. I had, uh, yeah, I had the image of, of poor uh, uh, Dorothy Hans' hand just. <laughs> Fall off trying to trying to transcribe this session because it 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 obviously uh, there was a lot of back and forth back and forth uh, in it. So, but and it, it, there was also there was a the, a final session was on, on what should we do with Russia and uh, Frank Knight who is a big fan of discussion was always saying well we should be open to discussion but you know Popper Robbins a bunch of others are just saying it's hopeless you can't deal with these people these are totalitarian. So it was really uh, it, it was in. Uh, maybe a couple of months after this meeting took place that the Marshall Plan was announced, and when the Russians refused to participate that 's often marked as the beginning of the cold war so it was it was really at the nadir of of uh relationships because the the various meetings between the the big four powers uh were going nowhere in the Ru- and it and it seemed to most of the people at this meeting that the Russians were doing that on purpose because they were quite happy to see everyone else just say, look, Europe is a mess. Let's get the heck out of here. And uh, and that would pro- provide a vacuum that would make for an easy entry. So uh, that was kind of the, I think the perception of, of people at that time of, of what was going on politically uh, geopolitics.
0: Right. Right. And as I said, like we definitely encourage everyone to check out the book and, and uh, check out all the sessions that were there. I think, uh, you know, we did a good job of actually highlighting some of the stuff but uh, but as our time does really wind down here now, I do want to move us on to one more question than our formal wrap up. So I will ask so, you know. So th- this meeting did happen. Ultimately, Hayek did achieve his goal. He got a bunch of people together, and the seeds were there to create an ongoing society. Um, for those who are unfamiliar, can you fill them in on so what happened over the subsequent decades and 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 where where is the Mont Pelerin Society at today? What what kind of impact do you think this ultimately had on the cause of liberal economic and political thought? <laughs>
1: That that would be a, a an entire new session, I would think, to to be able to address a a question like that um, uh, with with any kind of uh, <laughs> accuracy. But let's just say this: it it continues uh, to exist. Uh, this book will come out in 2022, so it'll be on the 75th anniversary of the Montpelier and Society uh, for the first ten years or so uh, funding was always very tentative and actually in subsequent years I think it was probably also the case um, and it was more of a European society but then by the 60s it, it, it actually became both European and American and then it it, it really expanded into South America uh, Asia you know the membership really started to expand uh, beyond the the original um, countries that were that were Originally represented, Um, and it has. I mean, one reason that I thought it would be important to do this book is that with the growth of what its critics called neoliberalism uh, in the past twenty or thirty years, the Mont Pelerin Society meeting, this nineteen forty seven meeting that ended up founding the society, is often portrayed in ways that that. Uh, I, I thought were historically uh, shabby and inaccurate. And I just wanted to provide a, an opportunity for people to see what was actually discussed at the, at the first meeting. I, I joined the Mont Pelerin society. I'm, I'm, the, I have been writing a book on Hayek, but I had also, I'm also the general editor of the Hayek collected works. And I took that over in, in the early two thousands. And at that point, I attended my first meeting because I thought I if I'm going to be writing about um, Hayek uh, and and overseeing this collected works uh, project that I needed to know more about the society that he founded and, and get to know some of the people that ultimately are going to be uh, playing a role in the second volume of, of, of the biography and yeah you know, I, I I saw it I finally became a member in 2010 um, and it yeah I it is an interesting uh, group. It, it's varied in terms of its international scope, as I said. Uh, there, it is a place where uh, there, now there's many, many sorts of foundations, as you well know, that that uh, support classical liberalism. And I do think that the Mont Pelerin Society was instrumental um, in bringing people together and then allowing those various other uh, societies and organizations to to take form. So. I think it does play an important role, but it's a it's a complicated story. It's one that I'm really looking forward to uh, delving into more deeply in the in the in the second volume of the biography as, as one of the aspects of of what Hayek was doing besides his intellectual work. Nice. So yeah.
0: Well I'm looking forward to reading that then. <laughs> That's gonna be awesome. Um Bruce, our time is while I'm down here. I'm gonna move us to our formal wrap-ups. And let me say in you know, in each episode we want to make sure the guest does ultimately have the chance and last word to tie things up. So let me say so we've talked about a lot. If we can bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question, let me ask, what do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what's interesting on how the Mount, Mount Pelerin Society began? In other words, if you wanted someone to take away one or two or just a few points or takeaways from this conversation, what, what would those ultimately be that you want to leave people with?
1: Well, I think I would encourage them to read the book because I think they will be surprised at the positions that are being taken by the people whose names they might know or might not. really depends on who the person is who's reading it. If you know nothing about the Montpellier Society, it's a way to, to at least get an idea about the very first meeting. But particularly if you have perceptions about what liberals think, this is the meeting where they started to try to figure that out uh, for the 20th century and so if you're interested in the history of liberalism this is this is a good place to start because it's it's uh, liberalism has a long history it has a 19th century history it has a 20th century history it has one going into the 21st century this was a pivotal moment in that history so i i you know you say two or three takeaways that's that's the point uh, of the book and and if if someone has an interest in that 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 would be that would be a reason to uh, to explore it a little bit, and there's plenty of places you can go afterwards. But it it, it isn't a bad place to start for the for the mid 20th century concerns that these people had and what they were
0: actually saying about them. Right, excellent. No one takeaway is absolutely fine. We can we can certainly leave it at that. Bruce Caldwell, thank you very much for joining me on the Curious Task today.
1: It's, it's been great. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine El-Chediak, and Eric Sege. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.